Hello, everyone. We'll give everybody a chance to join. Seems like it takes a few minutes to get everybody to connect. Okay, well, we may have a few more participants join us, but welcome back. Uh, this is our third panel. So far, things have been really interesting and really grateful for everyone's thoughtful remarks and the questions that we've had come through as well. Uh, our, our third panel is going to be on uh, political thought of Frederick Douglass. And uh, the moderator, someone I've already mentioned uh, to you before, is Dan Schillinger, and Dan was a postdoc here at the Marshall Center for a couple of years before moving on to Yale. And I consider Dan to be principally responsible uh, for this conference and putting it together. I'm very grateful for him. So uh, I'll turn it over to you, Dan. Well, thanks, Dan. Um, Dan's too kind or characteristically kind. Um, and just as he thanked me, um, I have to thank him for going forward with this conference under terrible circumstances. It was such a pleasure to work with Dan for two years at the University of Richmond and not just because he has awesome seats behind the basket at uh, Spiders basketball games. Um, I have a few more former colleagues at UR that I want to thank, but I'm gonna save those thank yous for the end of this session. Um, right now, I want to introduce our panelists, three amazing political theorists who have plumbed the depths of Frederick Douglass's political thought and who will take us down there with them. Nick Bucola is the Elizabeth and Morris Glickman Chair in Political Science and the founding director of the Frederick Douglass Forum on Law, Rights, and Justice at Linfield University. Um, when I, as a political theorist, think Frederick Douglass, I think Nick Bucola too. His first book, The Political Thought of Frederick Douglass, offers a masterful and comprehensive account of Douglass's thought um, and his edited volume, The Essential Douglas, uh, Selected Writings and Speeches, um, is the volume that we used last year at the University of Richmond um, when we held a reading group on Douglas. We thought it would be in the run-up to this conference, but uh, that didn't happen. If you haven't checked out um, Nick's most recent book, finally, The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley, and the Debate Over Race in America, get it now. It's amazing. Um, read it. Uh, Rewatch the, uh, the debate between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley Jr. on YouTube. You have nothing better to do these days, so um, do that. Our next panelist is Neil Roberts, Chair and Professor of Africana Studies and Faculty Affiliate in Political Science and Religion at Williams College. Neil's publications are vast, from his first book, Freedom as Marinage, published by the prestigious University of Chicago Press, um, to his upcoming book, which sounds uh, really intriguing to me, How to Live Free in an Age of Pessimism. But the contribution that I'd like to highlight um, is his edited volume, A Political Companion to Frederick Douglass, which features all the leading lights on Douglass from David Blight to Angela Davis to Herbert Storing to Nick. Um, and Neil's introduction to that volume um, is really important to me as a teacher of Douglas. And I think it's important to all scholars who write on Douglas because it has pointed the way uh, to new approaches. Last but not least, Lucy Williams is assistant professor of political science at BYU. She holds both a PhD and a JD from UCLA. Um, her excellent article, Blasting Reproach, Blasting Reproach and All-Pervading Light, Frederick Douglass's aspirational American exceptionalism appeared this summer in the Journal of American Political Thought. It's an awesome piece of work and she's going to draw on it in her presentation today. So uh, Nick, take it away. We'll go in the order that people are listed on the program. So first Nick, then Neil, um, and then Lucy. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much, Dan. Um, I'm, I'm so honored to be here. Um, I'm so grateful to all the folks at the University of Richmond who who made this possible. I wish we were all together 
uh, at Richmond, but instead we are here on our, our computer screens. I do want to give a Zoom tip, a pro tip. Um, Peter Myers, my friend Peter Myers, a great, great Douglas scholar, I could see Karl Marx on his shelf right behind him. And I want to warn Peter, he could end up on one of these professor watch lists. What you have to do is go with the kind of hostage-like background that I have featured here. Um, but no, really, I'm so grateful. It's such a such an honor to be part of this this group. Um, and just thinking about Douglas uh, with with all of you is is really an honor. Um, so I want to talk uh, today about liberty and responsibility in Douglas's thought. And this is something that um, I have been thinking about uh, with Douglas uh, for for a long time. And I'm I'm looking forward to uh, continuing to think about think through some of these ideas with. Uh, with you um, as we as we try to make sense of what Douglas has to teach us um, in this moment today. And so I, I want to um, use uh, some contemporary political theory or more recent political theory um, to try to make sense of, of these really big ideas in Douglas's political thought. And so I, and I, as I confess to Dan uh, in our email exchanges, I'm still working this out. And so I will work it out with you. It's not even a, a, a half-baked um, idea. It's a, it's a quarter-baked idea. Um, so I want to start with the most, the, sort of the most obvious part of the story, and that is that Douglas, something that's been mentioned many times in many of these great talks, um, Douglas as a kind of natural rights thinker. It is somebody uh, who has the natural right to liberty at the center of his political thought. Um, this idea is, is sort of part of uh, just about every interpretation of Douglas's political thought, uh, so I don't want to say too much about it. Um, the only thing to say, I guess, is that Douglas has this, this belief in the natural right to liberty um, that is rooted both in his sense of, of human desires and human capacities, right? There's this idea, right? No, no, no man I've ever met, as he says, uh, would choose slavery for himself. There's something about human beings, he thinks, fundamentally at their, at their core uh, that wants to be free. Uh, but also there's something about human beings that makes them fit for freedom, right? Certain capacities, reason, moral judgment, artistic capacities, emotional capacities, ability to kind of feel one another's pain. Uh, all these things for Douglas are the kind of foundation of this claim to liberty. And I think that's a really important foundational piece. Um, now, what might be a little bit less obvious is exactly what the, what sort of conception of liberty is, is behind all that, right? And so I think there's, um, you know, there's a way in which when we think as political theorists, as political philosophers about what freedom means, um, we have all these categories. And sometimes the categories are useful and sometimes they're not. Um, and I think that they can be useful, um, and I hope they'll be useful for what I'm about to say, um, in the following way, right? So we can think about Douglas's understanding of the natural right to liberty as including uh, what we call freedom as non-interference, right? The idea that you, uh, that people should not interfere with your freedom, should not subject you to coercion. Um, so that might be the most obvious uh, manifestation of, of Douglas's conception of liberty. But I want to argue, and others have argued, um, that we have to think about liberty in a more capacious way, because that, in, in this context, because Douglas certainly thought about liberty in a more capacious way. Um, for one thing, uh, as many scholars, including many scholars who are contributing to this conference, have pointed out, uh, Douglas was attentive to the ways in which freedom was threatened, not just by interference, but also by domination, right? So uh, Melvin Rogers, uh, Chip Turner, uh, Sharon Krause, a number of folks have, have sort of identified in very clear ways the ways in which Douglas was sensitive to the fact that you didn't, it wasn't just interference that threatened your liberty, um, it was also that the sort of power relationships were such that someone didn't have to interfere with your liberty directly in order to make you unfree. Um, so I think this idea of freedom is non-domination needs to be considered as part of Douglas's natural rights conception of liberty. Um, in the third category, and I'll again appeal to the work of Sharon Krause um, to, to make this point, Krause identifies what she calls freedom as non-oppression. Um, and she says this is distinguished from interference and domination by the fact that oppression, and I'll just read a, a quote from one of her, um, one of her books, uh, refers to impersonal social and political conditions that systematically and unjustly impede agency on the part of certain people. So the idea here is that uh, even under circumstances in which one's liberty is not being actively interfered with and, and there's not an identifiable person or group subjecting one to domination, one might still be unfree as the result of structural injustice that denies the individual the right to exercise the sort of freedom that Douglas thought fit us as human beings. Um, all right, so it's clear, I think, if we think, you know, just for a minute with Douglas about the ways in which human beings can be unfree, that he is sensitive to systems of power 
that limit people's freedom, right? So beyond interference, beyond domination, this, this kind of less, this more impersonal uh, freedom from oppression is certainly something that was on Douglas's mind. And we can see this in all sorts of contexts. Uh, I don't have to, you know, rehearse all the ways in which we can think about freedom as non-oppression as being at stake in Douglas's reflections on slavery. I mean, you know, that that's evident enough. I think David's uh, talk last night, drawing our attention to Douglas's reflections on the rights of immigrants. We can see this this idea of freedom of, as non-oppression uh, also manifesting itself there. The the uh, Lee Fott's presentation this morning. Um, about Douglas and the women in the world of Frederick Douglass and this question of Douglas and women's rights. We can see freedom as non-oppression being relevant there, right? Ways in which the freedom of women is threatened, not just by interference, not just by domination, but by this more impersonal, these more impersonal systems of power. So I think Douglas, the best way to think about Douglas and liberty is to utilize Krause's idea of plural freedom, right? We don't need to choose one of these things. Freedom is many things. Douglas was a wise enough thinker to not limit himself to a particular category uh, at the expense of others. He understood that freedom was a capacious thing and that the threats to freedom were, were, were many. Um, and so now what do we do with that idea of plural freedom if we situate it in his natural rights philosophy? Well, here's where I wanna bring responsibility into the conversation. Um, I, I've tried in, in a number of different ways uh, over the years to sort of think about the conception of responsibility or the conceptions of responsibility that are contained within Douglas's natural rights philosophy. So one of the big ideas uh, that, I, that sort of was the original thing that got me really interested in Douglas was that Douglas drew our attention to the ways in which our responsibilities are not satisfied by a pure, by purely by a simple principle of non-aggression, right? We are not satisfying our responsibilities that are implied in the natural rights philosophy if we refrain from violating the natural rights of others. That is not enough. That is not enough for Frederick Douglass, at least, and I think he's right about this. That is not enough. There's also, in Douglass's thought, a very clear, and this is linked back to that natural rights philosophy, a very clear claim that we have an affirmative obligation to vindicate the rights of others. That is part of Douglas's conception of responsibility. And so that I think is, is crucial. So there's a lot of different examples and Peter Myers mentioned in his talk, Douglas's 1857, uh, the, the Dred Scott speech that, that Douglas gave. I mean, there's a line, right? There is no freedom from responsibility, but in the abolition of slavery. That's Douglas's line in that speech that I think is, is really relevant for this, uh, for what I have to say. And, and in that speech, there's a lot going on there. And Peter drew your attention to uh, you know, one particular aspect of, of what Douglas is doing in that speech. Um, I want to draw your attention to the pirate ship analogy in that speech, because it's, it's been really helpful for me to sort of make sense of what Douglas is up to. Um, and so this is, uh, you can pull it up you know, on your computers. Everybody's on their computer. You can pull it up from one of these great websites that has all Douglas's writings included. I mean, I just want to I just want to highlight a couple of lines. So Douglas, in this part of the speech, is actually he's he's situating his conception of responsibility against the conception of responsibility of fellow radical abolitionists of the Garrisonians in particular. He says, "If I were on board a pirate ship with a company of men and women whose lives and liberties I had put in jeopardy, I would not clear my soul of their blood." by jumping in the longboat and singing out no union with pirates. My business would be to remain on board. And then he goes on. There's a, there's a lot more to this. The, the, whole, you know, the whole speech is incredible, but the whole paragraph is incredible. Right? So for the slaveholders themselves, of course, there's no responsibility to vindicate the rights of others. Um, he also, in that, in that pirate ship analogy, essentially refers to the Republicans who say, well, uh, we will, we, uh, part of our conception of responsibility is to say we won't enslave more people, right? We won't sort of have slavery in the territories and uh, future states and so on. Um, he, he takes on that conception of responsibility, but he also criticizes the Garrisonians for this idea of disunion, right? So this idea of leaving the union um, as a way to, to sort of assert some responsibility. Um, Douglas thinks this is a, a, an abdication of responsibility. So I want to just draw your attention to what the implications of this are. Right, so Douglas says we our duty is to remain inside the union uh, and use all the power that we have, all the power that we have to restore to enslaved millions their precious and God-given rights. Use all the power. That is the central theme, Douglas, uh, for Douglas as he evolved through the, 18, the late 1840s up to and through the Civil War itself, and even in the aftermath of civil the Civil War in different ways. 
the point, the point is to vindicate the precious and God-given rights of all people. And our duty is to use all the power available to us, consistent with other moral demands to vindicate those rights. Now, this is the, my last part of this. I don't know how I'm doing on time, Dan, but the last part of my, my, my talk is to say, okay, what do we do with that? Um, how, do, how does that sort of make sense theoretically uh, in, in the political world? Because it's a huge moral demand that Douglas is making on, on us. And for me, sort of making sense of this, I, I've been working on it over the years, and I think that some you know, more recent political theories helped me make sense of what Douglas is up to, and in particular, Iris Marion Young's uh, idea of structural injustice and political responsibility. Um, I believe that Douglas's understanding of injustice, um, and if we just limit that to the violation of the natural right to liberty, just that part of his understanding of, of injustice for the purposes of what we're, what we're thinking about here, um, I think that what Young calls structural injustice can really be helpful in, in making sense of our, our responsibilities here. Um, there are all sorts of ways in which individuals and groups can commit acts of injustice, but injustice has structural manifestations. So Young reminds us that structure denotes a confluence of institutional rules and interactive routines, mobilization of resources. These constitute the historical given in relation to which individuals act and which are relatively stable over time, right? So that's some like fancy political theory, but what she's, she's kind of getting at, that category of this kind of impersonal, these impersonal structures of justice that Krause highlights uh, so beautifully in her understanding of freedom, um, uh, freedom from oppression. And so Douglas is attentive to those things, right? So if we have this obligation to vindicate the natural right to liberty, then, what are the implications of that for our, our sort of responsibility in the face of structural injustice? So if I am right that Douglas's understanding of liberty is indeed as capacious as I described earlier, then what does this mean? Well, I think Young's ideas can be useful here. She says we need, we need to try to rethink responsibility away um, from what she calls a liability concept of responsibility, which is marked by, uh, which is primarily backward looking in purpose, reviews history of events in order to assign responsibility and also to, uh, to also liberate people from responsibility, right? To sort of absolve, you know, to, um, to uh, convict some and, and, um, and absolve others to a political conception of responsibility. Young calls on us to ex accept a political conception of responsibility. Um, and she says the political concept of responsibility says that we who are part of the political community should be held responsible for structural injustice as members of the collective that produces it and perpetuates it. Um, and that is, and then we don't have to find a direct causal chain in order to hold ourselves responsible. That is precisely, I think, what Douglas had in mind when he spoke of responsibility. It wasn't just about, and you think about the language he uses in the Dred Scott speech. He's talking about himself and his fellow radical abolitionists in the pirate ship analogy. He says, if I were on board a pirate ship with a company of men and women whose liberties I put in jeopardy. This is Frederick Douglass saying this to fellow abolitionists, right? I would not clear my soul of their blood, right? So Douglass is clearly identifying himself and all everybody as part of this responsibility. So where does that leave us, right? Douglass says that, um, that, you know, toward the end of his life, right? And this is, this is where I'll, I'll conclude. Um, he says in, in his speech, which is often uh, anthologized as the nation's problem, right? The true problem, he said in 1890, is not the Negro, but the nation. Uh, the true problem is whether the nation itself has in itself sufficient moral stamina to maintain its own honor and integrity by vindicating its own constitution and fulfilling its own pledges, or whether, or whether it has already touched that dry rot of moral depravity by which nations decline and fall and governments fade and vanish. This political moment that we're in right now has laid bare so many manifestations of the dry rot of our moral depra depravity as a nation. Our dramatic economic inequality, our obscene system of mass incarceration, the systematic terror of our policing on black and brown communities, our assault on the basic ins institutions of democracy and republicanism, do we have sufficient moral stamina to maintain or recover our honor, our integrity, to vindicate our constitution? Um, in, in this time, it is difficult uh, to find that hope. However, Douglas, as many have reminded us today and last night, Douglas calls on us to, to hang on to hope. 
He said at the conclusion of that speech, I have seen dark hours in my life, and I have seen the darkness gradually disappearing and the light gradually increasing. I remember that God reigns in eternity and that whatever delays, whatever disappointments and discouragements may come, truth, justice, liberty, and humanity will ultimately prevail. Here's hoping, to, here's hoping that Douglas was right. Thank you all. Am I up? <laughs> all right, you can hear me okay? And thank you, uh, Nick, again, setting the bar high and here's the energy. So that's what I, that's what I, that's what I like. I'll be, because of time, I'll be brief, but I would be remiss if I just didn't say uh, thank you to the organizers, to our panel chair who kept us honest in terms of trying to at least submit what we were going to talk about and then even give us some thoughts of um, what we might hear in the Q&A. Uh, and also um, my co-panelists and, and everyone here. So I'm gonna do a little bit of something new and a little bit of something old. I have to say after the previous panels, I thought maybe, I pres maybe I'm presenting the wrong material because there was so much discussion of hope, hopelessness, optimism, pessimism, that I was like, wait a minute, I should have just presented on <laughs> my most recent stuff. Um, but our first panelists, began with power. And so in many regards, that's where I'm going to start. So my formal remarks are political thought in the shadow of Frederick Douglass, but the, the new, so to speak, part of this is called the afterlives of the slave power. Power is in the air. It's on the streets. It's coalescing around monuments and statues. It's percolating throughout the movement for black lives. Power informs our responses to the global COVID-19 public health pandemic. And it never disappeared among elites occupying positions of authority in the highest echelons of states and civil society dedicated to the maintenance of racial inequality and injustice at the expense of that concept that Nick just mentioned, the concept of freedom. Power however constituted, exhorted Frederick Douglass, concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Power, wrote Hannah Arendt over a century later, corresponds to the human ability, not just to act, but to act in concert. In a recent political manifesto, Stacey Abrams has declared that power not only should belong to minority and majority groups alike, but also that it must be taken. Quote, to take power is to use the best of what resides within us for sketching a vision for the future, end quote. Black power, a political philosophy and rallying cry of activists in the Caribbean and the United States 50 years earlier was a demand for new births of freedom, equality, dignity, fair play, and justice as a consequence of the ravages racial capitalism created. Walter Rodney asserted that the repudiation of hopelessness was essential to black power in the United States and the coupling of a cultural reconstruction of society with the assumption of power was integral to the West Indian Black Power movement. Black women were vital to Black Power politics. They also issued critiques for, as the historians Diana Berry and Kali Gross document recently, new genres of Black feminism arose, arose alongside Black power. The principles of Black power, popularized by Stokely Carmichael, whose ideas former President Bill Clinton mischaracterized at the funeral for Congressman, the late Congressman John Lewis, generated rebuke and repression. White power was not unsettled. In the decade before the US Civil War, when Douglas uttered his famous sentence on power during a West India Emancipation Address, a particular form of white power, whose meaning in afterlives warrant our attention today, was the subject of widespread popular debate namely the slave power. 
The term slave power emerged in the 1840s and its usage expanded in the, 19, in the, rather, in the 1850s, particularly following ratification of the draconian fugitive slave law, passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and argumentation of Chief Justice Taney's Dred, uh, Dred Scott v. Sanford majority opinion, which has come up in previous panels. It referred to the idea that antebellum Southern slaveholders held a strong undue influence over the central decision-making apparatuses of the federal government, that is the White House, Congress, and what is particularly in the news now after Justice Ginsburg passing the US Supreme Court. Adherents of the notion argued the slave power swayed the voting of politicians, views of property holders, and deliberations of the legal system. The slave power used money, control, and intimidation to consolidate power. While federal, while federal government was their primary focus, this collectivity had a grip on state and local domains as well. This proudly racist oligarchy lobbied politicians above and below the Mason-Dixon line to permit Southern slaveholding without restrictions on the one hand and preserve racial segregation in the South and North respectively on the other hand thereby upholding a racial, hierarchical, structurally unjust, to echo Irish Young, and unequal republic. As commentators, including Leonard Richards note, the failure to repeal the US Constitution's three-fifths clause between its forging at the 1787 Constitutional Convention and the 1850s further underscored the breadth of power among the slave power elite. The, clauses that the clause enabled Southern politicians asymmetrical representation in Congress by counting each slave three-fifths a person for purposes of taxation and the allocation of seats by state in the U.S. House of Representatives. It was a godsend for devilish imperatives. No wonder the slave power received another moniker, slaveocracy. In the 1850s, many people considered the slave power a band of wealthy conspirators seeking to ensure the U.S. remained an inegalitarian white republic rather than an egalitarian and free society for all. For scholars writing in the 20th century, such as David Bryan Davis, the slave power idea exemplified a paranoid style of politics, to, uh, to echo uh, Hofstadter. For 19th century abolitionists concerned less with labels and more with policies and actions, the slave power designated a domestic enemy to be defeated both on moral and political grounds. The slave power, whose beliefs espoused John, uh, John C. Calhoun's white supremacist but not states' rights convictions, cultivated the road to unfreedom. By the early 1920s, popular sentiment on the slave power drastically shifted for a long duration after publication of an influential article, a single article, articles can have influence, a single article by Chauncey Boucher. Boucher discredited the slave power idea as a tragedy and a farce. Just because the, uh, the article had a stifling effect, however, doesn't mean it was right. John Stuart Mill, the philosopher and political economist, described the nature of the slave power in a rarely read piece that I would really encourage everyone to read if you have not before. In 1862, Mill penned a long review of J.E. Carnes' The Slave Power, its character, career, and probable designs. Mill's essay appeared three years after his most well-known work on liberty, a year following his considerations on representative government, and a few years before the outbreak of the Morant Bay Rebellion in colonial Jamaica. Mill dismissed the climate theory of race. He indicted the unrestrained despotism of planters whose image of power predicated itself on black enslavement and oligarchy. He rejected the slave power belief that blackness and whiteness determine death, life, and work options. Quote, Negroes are willing to work, Mill wrote, wherever they have natural inducements to it, inducements equally indispensable to the white race, end quote. Mill's piece had another objective too, 
condemnation of a British public that hypocritically supported abolition throughout the British Empire, yet ignored American Northern segregation, racial violence, and the slaveocracy of the Confederacy. For those, I like popular culture, so I don't know how many people watch or are watching Lovecraft Country, but ever since that has come out, because uh, this idea that all of this discourse is in the South rather than also in the North at that time, Mill would have been very attentive to this uh, as well. The U.S. was embroiled in a civil war, and the slave power had its share to blame for the war's emergence. A key lesson is that we ignore the slaveocracy's power at our peril. There is no monopoly on hypocrisy, and Mill exhibited his own hypocritical stances in his views on East India, civilization, despotism, and liberty after emancipation. The cause of abolitionism, as was echoed earlier, uh, drawing upon Manisha Sinha, reminds us that this was the slave's cause and not merely the result of white American abolitionists. The slaveocracy took power for their own. Enslaved peoples, fugitive slaves, as Du Bois noted in Black Reconstruction in America, and juridically free allies resisted them, taking power back to dismantle their network. Such actions are as essential now to deconstruction and rebuilding the world as before. I imagine this is why Eddie Glaude's new book is called right, Building the World, to begin anew, right? <laughs> echoing Baldwin, right? That we need to begin, not just negative dialectics about what we need to take down, but we need to actually begin again. Our spiritual core needs refashioning. The slave power exists today under a different name. To unsettle anti-Black white power and the slave power's contemporary hold on the polity, we must fight the power. We must organize. We must issue our demands, as Douglas encouraged us. We must vote in the November elections at every, and also at every level of government for those who have that capacity, not merely for, at the pres for president and vice president. We must stand up for our international students. We must model the type of equal and just society we wish to live in, and we must embrace power. I realize because of time, I have less time than I thought, so all I'm simply gonna do is read one paragraph and then a comment, I promise. Um, from what uh, Dan had mentioned earlier, the political companion uh, to Frederick Douglass. So uh, I'm not gonna kind of read anything I wrote substantively, but why I gave the title of this talk, um, uh, Political Thought in the Shadow of Frederick Douglass is, I'm very interested as many of us are here in trying to have us think about the ramifications of Douglass's thought for different categories in the study of politics. So this is not a disciplinary, um, uh, this is not a, a call to have one discipline <laughs> displaced over another with the study of Douglas, but trying to think about how can we actually use Douglass's thought and actually peer into concepts such as the concept of power. Interpreting the political thought of Frederick Douglass requires attention to time. Douglass was nearly 50 when the Civil War ended, and he lived another 30 years afterwards. And although the division of years between the anti and postbellum periods in Douglass's life wasn't as equally split as the years before, that is 35 years, and the years after, that is 34, the German emigrate political theorist Hannah Arendt arrived in America, the bloody interstate struggle over slavery and the fate of the American Republic was a critical marker for Douglass. Yet to situate Douglass's political thought in either a quote-unquote antebellum period or a quote-unquote postbellum period elides the major thematic areas that cut across Douglass's oeuvre, select changes in his positions within those eras notwithstanding. Douglass was a multifaceted and versatile thinker, a theorist and a practitioner, an autobiographer and an editor, an abolitionist and a statesman, an orator and a phenomenologist, a romantic and a realist, a feminist and a masculinist, an assimilationist and a decolonialist, a moral suasionist and a violent resistance defender, a Christian and a critic of slaveholding Christianity, a liberal and a Republican, a lawbreaker and a constitutionalist, a particularist and a universalist, a historicist and a poeticist, a Marylander, a New Englander, a Rochesterian, a communitarian, a self-made man, a black man, a slave, a fugitive, an anti-racist, an ex-slave. Last sentence, I promise. 
these positions and categorizations, however compatible and contradictory, have fascinated and challenges, challenged interpreters for nearly eight, 180 years, and the case is not different with us yes, last night and today. Uh, and so I want to end there just to say thank you for the time. I look forward to the conversation. But ultimately, the punchline is how can we actually, regardless of our positions on Douglas, whether close textual analysis or the spirit of Douglas, how can we actually, perhaps echoing that the first paper, the plural vision, right? not just plural freedom, but the plural natures of Douglas's thought um, for us all. Thank you. Thank you so much, Neil. And I, I love that you read that characterization of Douglas. When I was thinking about how to introduce that this panel, I thought about reading that paragraph. <laughs> so I'm glad you did it. Um, and thank you too, Nick. I'm sorry that I wasn't quick enough on the draw there jumping in. Um, Lucy, you're up next. Thanks. Great. Um, I would like to start, as others have done, by thanking the organizers who put this together. Um, it's been really fun for me to hear from and now sit on a panel with scholars whose work I have read and tried to engage with in my own research. Um, I also want to thank all the other conference participants. Um, your work and voices have started and sustained important conversations about Frederick Douglass. Um, I'm really grateful for those conversations and I'm grateful that you have so warmly welcomed my contributions to them. Um, so, this summer, as we all know, has been a noisy one in America. Since George Floyd's killing on May 25th, we have seen demonstrations and protests. We've seen statues toppled. We've seen mascots abandoned. We've seen military re uh, bases renamed. Um, we've heard pundits and politicians discuss and debate the merits of various protest tactics. And we've read and perhaps written op-eds, blog posts, and syllabi about uh, America's deep-rooted history of racial injustice. This noise and upheaval has spread to nearly every major city in the United States. In fact, in May, a columnist for The New Yorker tweeted, you know we're in uncharted territory when something happens in Minneapolis and they're setting cars on fire in Salt Lake City, which is actually where I'm joining you from today. Um, the unprecedented events of the last few months have challenged us to think more deeply about race and inequality in America and to ask whether and how we're complicit in racial injustice. But I think the last few months have also revealed or, or perhaps reminded us of something that's peculiar about our country. That is that we are remarkably uncomfortable with loud and critical politicking. For every person who celebrates or condones the demonstrations we're seeing, uh, there are five, it seems, who condemn participants for engaging in riots and carnage and lawlessness. And for every person who attends a rally or a march, there are countless others who just decry demonstrators for attacking civil society, instilling fear, and disrupting our great cities. Um, that's a quote from one of our state governors. So this, this discomfort with criticism, this fear of noise, I think is really nothing new. Um, throughout America's history, draft card burners, pussy hat wearers, national anthem mulers have all been dismissed as unpatriotic and even un-American. So I think the events of the last few months and, and America's response to them shouldn't surprise us, but I think these events should prompt us to consider why this is the case and what we can do about it. Why do we, a country founded on violent revolution, uh, feel so uncomfortable when our politics get messy? Why are we so threatened by internal dissonance and self-critique? Why do we routinely label critics as unpatriotic? And can we embrace noisy and messy and self-critical politics while also being committed to the idea of an exceptional United States? Um, today, I'm going to propose that Frederick Douglass can help us think through some of these questions. Like many of the vocal critics we are seeing in our country right now, Douglass was noisy, outspoken, and critical but he was also deeply devoted to his country and committed to its betterment. Um, and as David Blight said last night, he was a fierce believer in the composite nation that the United States could become. In short, he embodied and enacted what I call aspirational exceptionalism. This is an orientation that accepts America's status as, a, as an exceptional country, but that treats this excellence as a possibility and as a yet to be attained goal. So in the remainder of my time, I'd like to just uh, define and describe what I mean by aspirational exceptionalism, and then I'll explain how Douglas embodies and models this disposition. And then I'll close with some remarks uh, about 
why I think it's important that we recognize Douglas's aspirational orientation and how that orient uh, and what that orientation can teach us as readers and Americans and as global citizens in 2020. So first, what is aspirational exceptionalism? In the literature and in popular usage, people define and use the term exceptionalism in a lot of different ways. But I think at, at its core, most agree that exceptionalism is a, a constellation or set of beliefs that views the United States as special, as chosen, and as set apart to fulfill some distinct responsibility. But there are different ways of enacting and, and articulating these exceptionalist commitments. Often, uh, or typically, exceptionalism takes the form of a hyper-patriotic, self-celebratory, congratulatory, and uncritical discourse. It assumes that America already is and always will be distinct and chosen and responsible for something great. But American exceptionalism can also be more contingent, self-critical, and self-reflective. It can believe that America has the potential to be distinct and chosen and responsible for something important, uh, but it can recognize that these are possibilities rather than guarantees. This latter form of exceptionalism is, uh, this more critical form is what I call aspirational exceptionalism. It's, it's a set of beliefs that accepts the core commitments of exceptionalism, but articulates them in conditional, self-reflective and often self-critical terms. Um, Douglas models this aspirational orientation. Now, I want to acknowledge that Douglas was not always an exceptionalist. And at the beginning of his, his public life, he was a committed Garrisonian who believed that the Constitution was not and never could be a blueprint for an exceptionalist, an exceptional nation. Um, but over time, he abandoned these Garrisonian beliefs and came to accept that America is distinct and chosen and that it has an important role to play in world history. Um, these exceptionalist commitments are evident in many of his writings. One example is his famous Fourth of July address, uh, where he praises the genius of America's institutions, the grandeur of its national superstructure, its heroes and their rare virtue, um, and the peculiar circumstances that made its advent what he calls an event of special attractiveness. Um, another example is his 1857 speech responding to the Dred Scott decision, where he states, I know of no soil better adapted to the growth of reform than American soil. I know of no country where the conditions for affecting great changes for the development of right ideas of liberty and humanity are more favorable than here in these United States. So Douglas accepts the basic tenets of exceptionalism. He thinks it's special, it's chosen, it has a distinct responsibility, um, but he articulates these commitments in critical and conditional and aspirational terms. To illustrate this, I'd like to again turn to his 4th of July address, if only because it's so familiar to us all. Um, Douglas begins this address by emphasizing the nation's chosenness, its mission, its distinct features. But after he affirms these traditional exceptionalist commitments, he quickly turns to what he describes as stern rebuke and blasting reproach. Rather than describe America's most glorious moments, um, he repeatedly and unambiguously denounces its flaws and hypocrisy. He calls the American slave trade fiendish and shocking. He accuses listeners of inhuman, disgraceful, and scandalous practices. Practices. He reproves America for its gross injustice and cruelty. And he even highlights his audience's complicity, arguing your hands are full of blood. Douglas also makes intentional stylistic choices to expose America's cleavages. Rather than insist that the country is unified and harmonious, he distances himself from his audience by addressing his listeners in the second person. He refers to your national independence and your political freedom and your nation, um, but he holds himself separate. He also identifies and describes the disparity between himself and his listeners by saying, this 4th of July is yours, not mine. Um, as many scholars have observed, this rhetorical decision highlights Douglas's separation from the American polity and it also makes visible the cleavages that divide the country and foregrounds the fact that he, like many others, is not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Douglas further highlights America's internal divisions through a, pa a pattern of imperative mood clauses. In one striking passage of this address, he instructs his audience to behold the internal slave trade. He then describes men and women reared like swine for the market. And he directs his listeners to cast a glance upon that young mother 
whose shoulders are bare to the scorching sun, and to see that girl of 13 weeping. By directing his listeners to attend this imaginary slave auction, Douglas conjures a lucid portrait of American slavery. And by using the imperative mood, um, he forces and commands his audience to behold, to witness, to see the horrors he has uncovered. This unyielding demand for the audience to attend to the horrific things he's exposed contrasts sharply with the amnesia and evasion and comforting tone of traditional American exceptionalist rhetoric. Um, Douglas does not tiptoe around the nation's problems, but instead faces its flaws head on and forces his audience to do likewise. Douglas also draws heavily on religious language and imagery, um, a technique that lends his critique of America divine authority. For example, he calls slavery the great sin and shame of America, and he claims that he stands with God in denouncing America's practices. He also says there is not a nation on the earth guilty of, more of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States. These accusations are the antithesis of traditional exceptionalism's uh, self-righteous stance. If, if more traditional exceptionalism views America as a blessed nation that perpetually enjoys divine favor, Douglas sees it as both sublime and superlatively guilty a nation that is capable of greatness, but that also offends its maker. Um, but despite these critiques and despite his vitriol, Douglas remains invested in the United States. In fact, he acknowledges that his fire and thunder are meant to quicken, to rouse and to startle, but not to destroy. He has little patience for America's shortcomings, but he remains dedicated to its great principles. And though his speech is truculent and critical, he repeatedly addresses his audience as fellow citizens. By distancing himself through you and your, and then reaffirming connection by calling his audience fellow citizens, he underscores his commitment to America's potential for unity and equality. Um, most significantly, and as, as several participants have already observed today, he concludes with hope. And he insists that notwithstanding the dark picture he has presented, he does not despair of this country. This optimism stems in part from his belief in the, uh, the forces of universalism and cosmopolitanism. Douglas recognizes that global affairs are changing. In his words, intelligence is penetrating the darkest corners of the globe and nations can no longer shut themselves up from the surrounding world. And because Douglas believes this progressive trend is universal, he expects that it will necessarily and inevitably change American politics just as it will affect the rest of the world. Um, but he also thinks that America has a unique and important role to play in this trend. And again, this is evidence of his, of his exceptionalism. According to Douglas, the country has publicly endorsed saving principles that are hostile to the existence of slavery. Um, for instance, Douglas believes that the Declaration of Independence, um, through, the, through the Declaration of Independence, America has declared before the world and was understood by the world to, to declare a commitment to a set of enlightenment values. America's founders further exemplified this commitment by acting with what Douglas calls a sublime faith in the great principles of justice and freedom. These founders adopted a their, as their constitution a document that Douglas describes in this speech as a glorious liberty document. And Douglas argues that if that document is interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, it contains neither warrant nor license nor sanction of slaveholding. Uh, Douglas argues that in light of these public pronouncements, America's ongoing acceptance of slavery is hypocrisy and brands the country's republicanism as a sham. But the nation's professed principles also provide, provide the unique opportunity and the, the, the distinct obligation to fulfill the glorious promises of the country's founding. Douglas this view, uh, thus views America as a potential exemplar to the world, a nation that may, if it chooses, help usher in the all-pervading light that speeds the year of Jubilee the world wide over. Fourth of July thus reveals that Douglas is aware of America's present flaws, but committed to its flawless future. He realizes America is special and great, but he also acknowledges that it is not necessarily so. And though he boldly and candidly identifies the way America betrays its founding principles, he does this because he hopes and believes that America can still fulfill its yet unreached exceptional potential. In some, he's a consummate aspirational exceptionalist, one who recognizes the, the country's possible excellence and uses candid, self-reflective criticism to spur it toward that potential. 
Now, I've just provided a brief sketch of Douglas's aspirational exceptionalism as, it, as it's um, apparent in the 4th of July speech, and I'd be happy to talk about this in greater detail during the question and answer session. But for now, I want to conclude with some quick thoughts about how and why any of this matters for um, readers in America in 2020. I began my comments today by noting um, this country's peculiar discomfort with loud and noisy and self-critical politicking. In general, we as Americans don't like to be critiqued and we get very uncomfortable when we learn that people in our country are uncomfortable. Our default response to criticism is often to write it off and to dismiss it as unpatriotic, un-American, or as we've seen recently, as lawlessness, violence, and thuggery. To an extent, I think Douglas has been a victim of this phenomenon. Although scholars have long recognized the value of his, of his political thought, uh, we've generally labeled and studied him as a dissenter, as an apologist, or as a social critic, but we've not always, I think, appreciated his devotion and commitment to America, and we've certainly not classified him among the thinkers we call American exceptionalists. Um, but what if we did? I think there are benefits to recognizing Douglas's aspirational exceptionalism. To start, acknowledging his aspirational orientation might help us accept that citizens can be both committed to and critical of their country. It could also remind Americans that our relationships with our country are complex, in flux, and evolving, and, that, and it could help us be less threatened when our countrymen and countrywomen have orientations toward the country that are different than our own. It could teach us that noisy politics and devoted politics are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And perhaps most importantly, it could create room for critics and discontents and could remind or perhaps teach us that good citizens can be loud and disgruntled and defiant while remaining committed to the country. So in short, Douglas's aspirational exceptionalism provides a way for us to make sense of and to perhaps reframe noisy, loud, and critical politics. Um, as David Blight observed last night, Douglas both loved and hated his country. If we can accept this of Douglas, then perhaps we can accept it of each other and of ourselves as well. Perhaps we do not need to be so threatened by vocal self-critical political voices, because like Douglas, those voices may be expressions of, rather than challenges to, devotion, commitment, and patriotism. Thanks. Thank you, Lucy. That was great. Um, thanks to you all. Um, wow, amazing presentations. Uh, I want to put a few questions on the table, um, but I'll be quick and then I'll throw it back to you guys and I hope you'll take the conversation wherever you want to take it. Uh, I'm going to go in the reverse order since we just heard from Lucy uh, a, a couple questions for you. Um, Lucy, your, your argument strikes me as a spot on description of Douglas's rhetoric, um, yet I want to press you on Douglas's political thought. Does he really think that America is in some sense um, special, chosen, uh, distinct, as he must if he's really an exponent of American exceptionalism? Um, you mentioned in the piece from which your presentation is drawn that at the end of the 4th of July speech, Douglas points to the world historical forces that tend toward uh, the abolition of slavery. Um, David mentioned last night that Douglas is an Anglophile. Um, so is he really, is he really an American exceptionalist? Um, does he believe this stuff or, or is it just rhetoric? And, and then if he does believe it, I mean, maybe you could circle back to the question of hope, which I think is lurking behind all the presentations um, in this conference. Um, uh, Melvin talked about it very directly. Um, maybe, maybe you could say what you think the grounds of Douglas's hopes for that flawless future are, um, given that the present is so flawed. Um, Neil, I love your characterization of Douglas alongside Arendt as a theorist of power. I wonder whether you could say a bit more about his theory of power um, and what does it consist? What's distinctive about Douglas's theory of power? Um, it's also clear to me from both your presentation and your published work that um, you make heavy weather of Douglas's writings on um, an activism in the Caribbean. Um, could you say could you say more about that? I mean, why why should scholars focus, let's say, on Douglas's writings on on Haiti or emancipation in the West Indies? Um, maybe more than they've done to this point. Nick, 
I'm tempted to toss back to you the hot potato of a question that you um, tossed to David Blight uh, last night. Um, and I think I can kind of uh, tie it to what you just said this afternoon. Um, if Douglas's natural rights conception of liberty, in fact, um, um, goes along with this really demanding conception of responsibility, according to which um, we can't just respect, but we have to vindicate the rights of our fellow citizens, well then why does natural rights talk these days so often feel staid and conservative and opposed to political change and maybe even um, you know, of a piece with nativism, as you suggested uh, last night? Um, the second and final question for you to think about um, is just, I, I wonder if you'd say a little bit more about your attraction to Douglas as a capacious political thinker, as a both-and thinker. Um, what's good about that? Lucy, do you want to start? Sure, I will start. Um, these are great questions. Um, so your, your first question, I think, is, uh, in short, is Douglas committed to exceptionalism ideologically or only rhetorically? Um, I think he seriously and sincerely believes uh, that America has exceptional potential. Um, yes, he was an Anglophile. Um, yes, he believed in cosmopolitanism, but I don't think that any, any of this should cause us to doubt his exceptionalist commitments. Um, in fact, I see his cosmopolitanism as kind of proof of his exceptionalist views. Um, we've, we've noted during this conference that he thought that world historical forces were naturally tending toward the end of slavery, but he also made it very clear that he thought the United States had a special role to play in that um, because of the promises the United States had, has made, because of the, um, the values and principles it's endorsed. So I think that if Douglas looks to and celebrates the examples of other countries, he does that because he thinks that their examples and the forces of cosmopolitanism can help the United States and motivate it to, to achieve its exceptional potential. Um, to answer your, your second question quickly, um, what, what is the basis of his hope? Um, you warned me that this question was going to be coming before um, I heard Melvin Rogers and Peter's, Peter Myers speak this morning, but I think both of their presentations, um, I mean, this is kind of a cop out. They said what I would have said. Um, I think that um, he, he is hopeful because he believes in natural law and he thinks that slavery is against natural law and he thinks that inevitably it will, it will end. Um, I liked Peter Meyer's gloss on that um, about it will end because slaveholders will inev inevitably overreach and, and be punished. I think that was a really interesting take. Um, I think also he is hopeful because of his religious and providential commitments but I think ultimately he's hopeful because he believes in, in the ideas that America is based on. He believes in the principles um, that it's grounded in and, um, and he believes that the constitution, he, he says in the 4th of July address, you know, this is the ring bolt to America's destiny. So I think his hope is, is grounded in those three things and his religious commitments and his natural law commitments, but perhaps most importantly in, in his faith in the ideals um, that America is based on. So. Let the others talk. Uh, I guess I'll jump in and thank you for those um, <clears throat> questions. So I think I'll answer them the following way. I definitely have my strong intuitions with Douglas on power, though I would probably flag um, uh, a, a, a couple facets. One, you know, Nick Bromel has a forthcoming. Uh, a wonderful forthcoming book that is specifically focused on uh, Douglas on power and dignity. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, he really makes, uh, I mean, I've just seen the manuscript, not the final version, but the really makes the strong case that um, across several decades, Douglas did develop a concept of power. What I'd probably add on to Bramel is that, um, you know, especially when one is talking about political theory and philosophy, the default in modern academia tends to be looking at Michel Foucault and thinking about this idea of right, power and knowledge and that power can be constructive. But um, I think if we go back more than 100 years, Douglas is making an argument, not that there weren't forms of power 
that have detrimental consequences, but that power was not only not a dirty word, but it was actually uh, very fundamental to how he understood his conception of the free life. Uh, it is a, his conception of power goes very much through, where I kind of ended my remarks saying that this idea of having an antebellum, postbellum Douglas doesn't work when there are certain ideas that cut across. Because if we look right in the middle of Douglas's work, particularly his middle autobiography, My Bondage and My Freedom, and I'm not just interested in the main text, but the appendix, right? His very, his specific choices. In there, Douglas actually selects some of his speeches of which he defines, right? Uh, what is power uh, in that? And, and that's very important. It's not just an annex. The appendix is a part of the text itself in the midst of what I was actually trying to present on this phenomenon of the, the, the kind of slave power having this asymmetrical hold in Douglas's view on, uh, on the Republic. To the question with regards to Haiti, I'll just, I've wrestled with what I'm going to read, which is the last, the, the final sentence of the second edition of Life and Times, Douglas's um, uh, final autobiography that, as we know, has Two, it was greatly expanded even in its second um, edition where Douglas writes, quote, I've been the recipient of many honors among which my unsought um, appointment by President Benjamin Harrison to the office of Minister Resident and Consul General to represent the United States at the capital of uh, Haiti and my equally unsought appointment by President Florville Hippoli to represent Haiti among all the civilized nations of the globe at the world's Columbian exposition are crowning honors, right? crowning honors to my long career and a fitting and happy close to my whole public life. Initially, when I read that, I thought this is a little over the top. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. But what is the case, if we go back to the, the definition of power that Douglas is most associated with, the 1850, 1857 West India Emancipation Speech, where Douglas, not just then, but every year, would make different speeches particular to the West Indies and looking at what happened in the post-emancipation post period in the West Indies and trying to make sense what lessons can we learn from that, put differently, it makes us have to consider to what degree do we need to think of Douglas hemispherically. And that's why, not my work, but Juliet Hooker, I think, has been the best on this, quite frankly, in terms of making an argument that we need to think about Douglas as a hemispheric thinker, not because he was, some, uh, he was a necessarily a Pan-Africanist of a certain variety or a black nationalist, but that he was very interested in hemispheric development, such that if one wants to even talk about, for instance, aspirational exceptionalism or different forms, when Douglas, particularly his relationship with the, the attempted annexation of uh, Santo Domingo, which didn't go through, but Douglas is trying to think about multiracial democracy and what would multiracial democracy mean if we actually even looked at different political developments in Central America and the Caribbean. So I'll shut up, but simply to say that I think that if we actually understand Douglas as an internationalist, that um, does not uh, uh, that is not incompatible with actually thinking of him as an American thinker, Cons thinking through how can we fashion the polity and why power and understanding that is central to being able to actualize an aspiration. Um, I know we're we're about about out of time, so I'll just I'll just say something very briefly in response to Dan's questions. Thank you uh, to to my fellow panelists. Those were really great talks. Um, you know, on the, the the question I asked about the the sort of association of natural rights, you know, the use of natural rights, uh, you know, by you know some of the contemporary uh, right wing. Um, I mean, I guess I have two two responses, including in the context of discussions of Douglas. One. Um, is that often this kind of language of natural rights in a contemporary context is just simply a rhetorical cover. If I'm being really uncharitable uh, or I'm being you know, my critical mode, my cynical mode, I would, I would say that uh, the, the language of natural rights often serves as a kind of rhetorical cover for an agenda that has nothing to do with the natural rights of, of anyone. So um, I think that's something that we should always be, be, uh, you know, be thinking about. Um, and I think the other, if you know, sort of the less cynical Nick, the more charitable Nick um, would say that I think, you know, there's a lot of folks thinking about things like natural rights um, who, you know, who could really benefit from, uh, 
from having the kind of capaciousness that I think all of us are talking about that Douglas had, right? I'm, I'm trying to appreciate the ways in which, and you think about something like, like race, right? And we have all this really great work being done, you know, and has been done for, for so long, trying to get us to think through what, you know, what race is as a concept, what racism is, what anti-racism is. Um, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of folks who think of themselves as natural rights or part of this natural rights tradition or are trying to make sense of people like Douglas who they identify as being part of the natural rights tradition, who, who really, in my view, and I think in Douglas's view, do not have a sufficiently capacious understanding of what racism looks like uh, in the world. Um, um, and so, uh, and I, I don't say that, and I, so I think that is really, you know, this is a moment, right, where we're seeing these clashes, right, 1619 versus 1776 versus whatever. Um, and what I hope comes out of that, right, some of that is silliness, but some of it could be serious and could be important. Um, if we engage history in uh, in a real way and don't just dismiss, uh, you know, anybody out out of hand without you know taking their perspective seriously, um, because this is a time, right? This is a serious. I mean, this is a serious time for serious people, right? And so I think we we have limited time uh, to spend, and so I think engaging in a serious way. And again, we might disagree, but that's okay. Uh, we you know, Douglas is another is a model for us on this. He had a lot of people that he could have fierce, knock down, drag out all night, you know, arguments with um, and still love them, right? But, um, but also he was somebody who was fearless in calling people out for what they were when, it, when that was required. And so I think that's, that's, you know, a lesson I take away from, from Douglas in this moment. I think that was part of his hope is that um, so long as there are people who are willing uh, to, to stand up um, in moments like this and speak the truth, um, you know, he hung on to that that hope that that human beings could be could be better from they are better than they are to borrow a you know a line from James Baldwin. So uh, thank you all. This has been great. Yes, thank you. Um, that was an awesome panel. Uh, there's so much um, uh, that was both timely and timeless. I think um, so. Thanks. I want to bef before I turn it back to Dan. I just want to say um, thanks. Uh, to the students, again, who participated in this, this Douglas uh, reading group at UR last year, and to one person who hasn't been mentioned yet, um, Kevin Cherry, um, Associate Professor of Political Science, um, politi great political theorist at, at UR, who is really the rock of that, of that reading group. Um, so he's, he's a great reader of Douglas, too. Okay, thanks, everyone. Thanks, Dan.